0: encourage you to turn in your bibles now to 1 Kings and chapter 16 as we read about the short reign of Zimri and then the civil war that broke out and hopefully we'll be able to learn some important lessons for our own time because they are here if we have eyes to see them but before we turn our attention to uh, the word of the lord let's turn our attention to uh, the Lord of the Word, and let's ask for his help. God, our Father, Abba, we have need of your help whenever the Word is being preached. I need your help. I need, I need your unction. I need, O oh Lord, your Spirit within me, helping me to divide your Word aright. I can't do it by myself. I will make terrible errors and send your people in the wrong direction. But I pray, O oh Lord, that now you would cause me to open up this Word and declare what it says truly. I do pray, O Lord, also that you would help those who are listening. We know the devil is always at our elbow whenever the word is being preached. He does not want us to get anything from it. He makes us drowsy. He leads us to think about all the things that are of no importance or uh, are only important for time but not eternity. And he draws us away from the main lessons. He causes us to hold grudges, to to be irritated, but not, Lord, to be humbled and convicted. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work in us then. Break up our hearts with your word, Lord, and then plant that precious seed that only you can give so that it might come up and produce that harvest that you desire. Help us, O Lord, to have Christ dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings 16, and I'm going to be reading this morning verses 15. Through twenty-two, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. In the twenty-seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in tears as seven days, and the people were encamped against Gibeahon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, "Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king." So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibeathon, and they besieged Tirzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri reigned. Omri, rather. The word, or rather, the grass I, the rest with us in the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'm having a senior moment this morning, apparently. Well, A.D. 69 may not be a very memorable date, but it was very memorable for the Romans. It was not a particularly good year. Uh, it was known as the year of four emperors, and whenever you have four emperors in one year, that's not a good sign. Uh, Nero died in 68 AD, he was the last of the Julian emperors, he uh, committed suicide with the assistance of his servants, and then he was followed by an old man, a man who had uh, stood against him near the end when his corruption became unbearable, a man by the name of Galba. Uh, Galba ruled from June of 68 to January of 69, or rather, uh, yes, and Galba Though noble born, unfortunately, was too weak and he was too old to hold on to power. He didn't have a sufficient following. And he was in turn assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, and a friend of Nero's, Otho, uh, was initially chosen as emperor to follow him. But Otho's faction also proved too weak to take on the followers of another general by the name of Vitellius. And Vitellius uh, defeated the forces of Otho at the Battle of Bendriacum in April. And Otho, following the example of his friend Nero, also killed himself, although he did it without help. Finally, after a hideous battle in Rome itself in December, a better general with a greater number of legions came in. Uh, His name was Vespasian. He overthrew Vitellius, uh, and Vitellius in turn was assassinated and then thrown into the river Tiber, thus four emperors in one year, a sign of bad things. Galba, Otho, and Vitellius learned a lesson, and they learned it the hard way, and it is this. It is one thing to seize a throne, and it is another thing entirely to be able to hold on to it and to be blessed in the holding of it. A petty general by the name of Zimri in the northern kingdom of Israel also learned that lesson the hard way, but not after months, after only seven days a week. Now, we need to ask the question, what is going on here? Why did they have this quick succession of, of kings, assassinations, and then new kings coming up? Why all this assassination and, and replacement? Well, the answer uh, was actually given by Solomon in Proverbs 28.2 when he wrote this. He said, because of the transgression of a land, many are its princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. In the northern kingdom, they had a succession of kings. Why? Because they had turned against the Lord and his word. They were no longer worshipping him the way that he had appointed. In fact, they had started worshipping false gods in the north. Now in the south, they still had a good king, a descendant of David by the name of Asa. And as a result they did not have this continuous striving and and assassinations and so on under him. He ruled for quite some time. In fact, he becomes the standard. So you say, in this year of Asa's reign, in this year of Asa's reign, because he continues on while all the northern kings are constantly changing. We learn then that when men forsake God, they find that their nation has no peace, nor are good rulers to be found and good dynasties to be established. Everything is in chaos. Everything is in turmoil. Men rage and gnash against one another. They they hate one another. And proud and grasping men rise up, and not only do they ruin one another as they seek for power, they often ruin nations with them. They take down those nations. Well, Calvin reminds us of this. He says, Not that wicked rulers are some sort of mistake or they're just a coincidence, but rather when a nation has a wicked ruler, it is the judgment of God that is being shown in that. We should learn from that. Well, let's take a look at this first wicked ruler we read about here, this man by the name of Zimri. Uh, Zimri, incidentally, the name uh, means, well, it comes from the root for a song, a tune, uh, but he was a very short tune to begin uh, with and to end with. So we read last week about how Zimri had plotted against and then overthrown Baasha's son, Elah. He had plotted with his steward, and he knew that Elah was a drunkard, and he had killed him in his Household. Then he had gone on to cut off not only the children of Baasha, fulfilling the prophecy that the Lord incidentally had given that his his dynasty would be destroyed. But then he went on not only to kill his children but his friends as well, everybody who was well disposed towards that dynasty. But we need to remember he was only a general of half of Elah's chariots. Uh, We might call him a brigadier general at best, and there was a much more senior general by the name of Omri, who was conducting the siege of Gibeathon. This was a siege which lasted, incidentally, intermittently for 24 years. What had happened was this was a, a Levitical city. It was in the land of Dan, but it had been taken by the Philistines. They had... Uh, They had um, built it up, and now the Israelites were having a terrible time trying to take it. It would take them 24 years before they would be able to overcome uh, the Philistine defense. Now, Zimri's pride and his desire to exalt himself, and often we remember that it is pride that goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, and Zimri certainly was showing that. Ultimately, he would have one claim to fame. He would be the northern kingdom's shortest reigning king. So that's one thing that uh, he's remembered for. But um, having exterminated the royal family, he thought that he had had a good claim to the kingdom. But the army and the rest of the people did not. He did not have a large enough faction. And his fellow soldiers did what the Romans would later on often do. They simply said that their general in the camp they determined he would be the king and then they marched back on the capital city that's what happened here they marched on Tirzah. Tirzah's defenses were not particularly strong it had not been the capital of the northern tribes for very long and apparently the walls were quickly breached and when that happened Zimri retreated into the citadel and then what did he do? Well he set the citadel on fire He determined that if he was not going to be the king, he would kill himself and he would also destroy much of the nation's wealth and certainly its strongest place in the capital city. An act of tremendous selfishness there. Now... What did he do in seven days that deserved such a condemnation, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, the first thing, obviously, was even though he was the Lord's uh, anointed agent in one sense, in order, not in the messianic sense, of course, though, but he was the chosen agent to destroy the wicked dynasty of Baasha, but at the same time, it was his own wickedness that was at work here and he uh, not only was a man who did this great evil of killing the prior king, uh, king's son, but he also was a man who was evil in the sense that he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. And unfortunately, we're going to see that's the case with the northern kings. They just will not stop their evil idolatry. They won't stop worshiping these false gods. And he is also, we see, supremely selfish in the fact that he, like uh, Sardanapalus, the last king of Assyria, uh, who was a man who was renowned for his sloth and luxury at the end of his reign when he realized that the uh, alliance that had been created against him was about to overcome him, he also retreated into his inner citadel. He built up this giant pyre Uh, He had his concubines thrown upon it and all of his wealth. He was determined that if he couldn't have it, nobody else would. And so he put himself to death. And unfortunately, in that act of self-murder, Zimri um, set a terrible example for the people of Israel as well. Zimri's death, though, is not the beginning of Omri's undisputed rule. There's this interesting note. After Omri uh, is uh, overthrowing Zimri. We see that Tibni uh, rises up against him. Now, a lot of people, there's tremendous conjecture here amongst commentators. They're like, "Well, was it was it the case that here you had this uh, the army, the leader of the army is is trying this coup, and then we have a civilian leader who comes in, uh, representing the people, and so we have two factions? Well, we we know there was a civil war. It lasted five years. We know this because Asa's rule. Uh, we know in the 27th year Zimri reigned and then and he only reigned seven days but then Omri doesn't become the undisputed king of the northern kingdom until the 31st year of Asa's reign. So there was a five-year period where they were in turmoil, where they were fighting against each other. Half the people following Omri, uh, less than half perhaps following Tibni, and then other people being in between. Finally, Tibni dies. It's very unlikely that Tibni died of natural causes. His death was probably accelerated, obviously, by Omri and his followers. Now, one of the things that we need to look at here is the fact that in Omri, as he rises up, we have a, an effective military leader. And we have an effective political leader as well. Somebody who's able to bring the factions together. Somebody who is able to consolidate the support of the army behind him. And somebody who was able to wield power. We're also going to see that he's effective when he fights against the neighbors of Israel. But we need to remember this does not make him a good king. Although he may have been a political success in some senses, he was a religious and an ethical disaster. And he spawned one of the worst kings that Israel, the northern kingdom, will ever see. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the example of Omri and then, or Zimri first, and then Omri and Tibni and so on? Well, one of the things that you've got to see, brothers and sisters, is the fleeting nature of worldly wealth and power. Zimri only had his wealth and his power for seven days. Omri had it for considerably longer than that. But what does it matter ultimately? Because in both cases, the moment they died, all of the worldly wealth and power that they had accumulated to themselves was snatched away from them. Most people who strive after wealth and power will not even accumulate as much power as Zimri was able to do for seven years. They will prove to be unsuccessful in all of their grasping for the things that this world can give them. And again and again in history, we have seen this cycle of, of despots rising up, dictators coming to power, wielding terrible power for a while, causing misery and death, and then being cast down and ultimately fading away. And what have they gained? What have they gained in an eternal sense? Nothing. And what's their memory? They're They're hated. Zimri was despised by his own people. They removed him from power. Zimri was not living for God. Zimri left behind no dynasty. Zimri ultimately, although he may have achieved power for a very short period of time, ultimately he was a terrible failure because he was living for the wrong thing. And then what did he do? He dies in despair, killing himself. If I can't have it, nobody can, and he pulls down the citadel on his own shoulders. And we have to ask ourselves, are we living for what lasts? Or are we seeking to grasp and grab at whatever we can get in the short term? Is it the case also that if we were to fail in a worldly sense, if our, if our aims, our dreams, our aspirations are snatched away, those things that we really wanted here and now, if we lose them, small or large, great dreams or small dreams, does it bring us to despair? Are we brought to the, to the verge of killing ourselves? Well, if I can't achieve worldly success, if I can't have recognition, if I can't have fame, if I can't have the love that I want, do I kill myself? And make an end of myself? Do I murder myself? And that's a question that we need to, we need to look at. Um, the life of Zimri and the death of Zimri in particular put suicide before us. What can we learn about suicide from his example? And often, man, most people uh, will ask this question, Christians in particular, whenever you bring up the subject of suicide, what's the question people ask? Can suicide be forgiven? Or is it the unforgivable sin? Well, let's think about this. What is suicide really? Sometimes we think about suicide as as something unique. It's not really. It's just self-murder. Murder is the unlawful taking of a human life, a person built in the image of God. You are not your own. Remember that always. You are God's creation. You are God's creature. There is one who, whether or not you acknowledge him, rules over you. And he has made you for his purposes. Your life is, in a very real sense, every single day in his hands. You don't own yourself. You are not the master or the captain of your fate. He is. So when we kill ourselves, we are doing something unlawful. It is as unlawful as killing somebody else. So let us ask this question. If suicide is self-murder, can murder be forgiven? Can murder be forgiven? It's not a rhetorical question this time. Yes, it can. Paul and David are proof positive of that. Here we have men who murdered others, who took human life unlawfully. And yet we know both of them were forgiven. But that should never leave us with the conclusion, well, if murder can be forgiven then we can do it, right? It's okay. That should never be our approach to any sin. Just because a sin can be forgiven, and that at the highest possible cost. Because remember this, in order for a sin to be forgiven, Christ had to pay for it on the cross in full. And therefore, there is an awful, awful price to be paid for every sin. And for a sin that involves the taking of a human life, that's a, that's a terrible sin. It also, when we think about it, whenever somebody kills themselves, they leave behind immediately to a terrible memorial. One inevitably is left with the question, was this person really saved if they were brought to this end, if they were caused to despair And, of course, the person isn't there to defend themselves or to clear themselves or to testify and say, yes, yes, no, I really was a Christian, but I I listened to the evil one. I allowed the world, the flesh, and the devil to bring me to the point where I, I couldn't take it any longer. And we need to remember that we are saved not by our actions, our works, but by the blood of Christ. It covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. But that should never be thought of as carte blanche to sin. Rather, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus should be something that encourages us day by day to live according to our new nature. You have been freed from bondage to sin. Therefore, do not turn back to it and do not be tempted to do that which is most evil. Hear the the words of Phil Riken, a commentator on this particular section of Scripture in your Sabbath meditation. He says this, which is very wise. He says, For some people, suicidal thoughts become a preoccupation. We should recognize these thoughts for what they are, a temptation that comes from hell itself. God does not want us to die, but to live and to know the power of his grace to help us through all the troubles of life. While there is life, there is always hope in Jesus. So if we are ever tempted to take our own lives, we should fight that temptation with everything we have. If Christ was so willing to lay down his life for you, to go to the cross and to suffer humiliation and then to suffer in your stead the pains of hell, then how ungrateful are we to put an end to ourselves listening to the evil one, doing that which he wants us to do? Because understand... There's one thing I've learned from being a Christian a long time. While the devil cannot snatch away our salvation, he does desire earnestly to snatch away our lives. Often he'll do that, obviously, through the enemies of the church. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are constantly under threat, constantly being put to death by the enemies of Christ. The enemies of Christ strike at the church because they're doing the will of the devil. They hate Christ. And so, therefore, they strike at his people. And thus, we remember, what did Paul hear from the Lord as he was going to Damascus? He heard as he was thrown down, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when the enemies of the church strike at our Nigerian brothers and sisters in Christ, they are actually persecuting Jesus. They're striking at the apple of his eye. But when we turn our hatred upon ourselves, and we strike at ourselves, we are also, remember this, again, striking at Christ and a member of his body if we are Christians. And therefore, this is a terrible thing to do. Self-murder is never right. And I often, I, I will say this from the heart. I do a lot of counseling, obviously, uh, from time to time. And there are various events in, in a child's life that can can really scar them that are so, uh, emotionally and spiritually, and I hate to use this word, but I'm going to, impactful, that they leave uh, lingering baggage for their entire life, often very deep wounds, very deep scars. One of the ways that you can scar children for life is to get a divorce, to rend apart the, the marriage relationship that always leaves terrible wounds in kids who grow up in divorced families, separated families. Lots of anxieties, lots of fears, Lots of, of uh, frustration and anger and so on. But I have to tell you this. The children of divorce are as nothing, and I mean this, compared to the children of suicide. Some of the most unhappy, messed up people I have met in my entire life had parents who killed themselves. And it's, it's a heartrending and an awful, awful experience. And it doesn't just affect the children, also spouses are suddenly bereaved of their mate by suicide are also some of the unhappiest people I have had to deal with. It is and do not fool yourself it is a supremely selfish act it is as selfish as Zimri or Sardanapalus or anything like that going into the citadel lighting it on fire and saying if I can't have what I want I'm going and I'm taking my ball with me that's it that's all we're doing in that. And it may seem like it's the only way out. It never is. We'll discuss that in a little while later. But I want to bring something else before you. It's interesting. Sir Walter Raleigh, in his History of the World, he, um, he asked this question, why was it that there were all these confusions and revolutions and constant turmoil in the kingdom of Israel? And yet, they never thought, in the midst of all of this unhappiness, in the midst of civil war, they never thought of returning to the house of David, of saying it's time to end our rebellion. We may not like Asa, we may have gotten in a fit of pique up against David and his household, but Asa is certainly a much better ruler than most of the guys that we've been going through, and they don't seem to have half the turmoil we do. Why didn't they unite themselves to Judah? Well, um, Raleigh believed that the reason was, and he's giving a political answer, I think, to a spiritual question. He thought it was because the kings of Judah had assigned themselves a more arbitrary, a more despotic way of ruling. It was divine right of kings, and these people having had kind of a more Republican, and uh, small r, Republican, Uh, way of government, wanted to self-rule themselves. The tribes wanted more autonomy. They wanted more independence. That was his answer. I don't think that's right, though. I really don't. What do I think is the reason why they refused to be reunited with their brothers and sisters in the South, their fellow Israelites? I think the answer is found in what we sang a little while ago in Psalm 2. Open your Bibles. Would you just go, if you're not already in the Bible, go to Psalm 2 and read with me this. Because Psalm 2 need not apply just to the nations. We think when we think of the nations, we think of the nations outside of Israel. It can apply to God's people as well when they set themselves against God and his anointed. We read this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and saying uh, and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What has happened? They said, that is the northern kingdoms had said, we will not submit ourselves to the Lord and to the dynasty that he set up, the descendants of David, his anointed kings. Instead, we will be a power in the earth unto ourselves. We'll do what we want to. We will not return to the sons of David. We will select our own rulers. And they raised up kings who also did not follow the Lord. A wicked people who were rebelling against God chose rebel kings again and again, who led them in false worship, who set up false ethics, who gave them terrible examples, doing awful things before the people. And the cycle continued on and on and on. They kept looking for human answers to a divine problem. Now the line of David... And Of course, David was God's anointed king. He was a Messiah in the small M sense. Messiah means anointed. So does the word Christ, Christos, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, in essence. The one whom God had foretold would come. The blessing to all the nations. Abraham had been told that from his own seed, one would come who would be finally the blessing to the nations, the Savior. So the system of worship in the south that they they hated so much and the kings they hated so much were meant to drive them to Christ, were meant to point them to the true Christ. Although David had his failings and so on, he was a type of Christ. And though Asa was not a perfect king, he too reflected the Messiah who would come eventually. But they said, no, we don't want their rules. We don't want their morals. We want rather human solutions. We want political answers to spiritual problems. And brothers and sisters, I have to tell you this. We can make exactly the same mistake. I tend to find that Christians are doing that more and more commonly these days, seeking political answers to spiritual problems. We can choose countless political rulers and think that our salvation is going to be found there but it's not the case we often say to ourselves well we're not we're not choosing a pastor we're choosing a political leader and this allows us to choose dissolute and and awful men and then think that they will lead us to happiness and so on and it's not the case A multitude of wicked and godless men reigning over a nation, regardless of whether they are politically adept or politically inept, know this, cannot save you. They cannot save a nation. Also, here's the more chilling truth. They're a reflection of the wickedness of the people. You remember Calvin's point is true. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say, we've had a myriad in recent days, haven't we, of wicked rulers. Understand this, as important as the 2024 elections may be to the American people by themselves, they will not be the salvation or the destruction of America any more than replacing the drunkard Elah with the wicked schemer, Zimri, And then replacing him in turn with an evil but effective politician and military leader will be the salvation of Israel. I I hate to ruin the story, but none of these kings will work out for them. None of them can be the Messiah to them. And none of those political rulers or political systems can be a savior to you. Now when Jesus, you remember, came to his people, what did they think was their biggest problem? because they'd fallen into this mindset as well. They thought their biggest problem was Romans, Roman occupation, the fact that we are a subject people. And I, I don't want to downplay the fact that when you know, you've got a, a foreign people with their foot literally on your neck telling you what to do, running your country, that's something that, I mean, I, if you guys were being ruled by the Chinese today, I know you would be gritting your teeth and, and, and very upset more than very upset. Not taking it. That kind of thing. So you've got to understand how they felt. And yet, was that their biggest problem? Was that what Jesus came to free them from? Roman oppression? And the answer is, of course, no. He came to deal with the much bigger problem, which is the problem of the heart. The problem of the wickedness that lay within it. And the people, seeing someone who had come to deal with their real problem and not their political problem, Rejected him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And unfortunately, so many people within the church, if we don't answer, if if we're not answering the political question or political questions, either on the left or the right, we reject Jesus. We want a political Jesus just as much as the Israelites did. But, brothers and sisters, that's not what we need. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our biggest problem collectively and here I'm really going out on a limb, forgive me, is not Joe Biden and his administration. It's a problem, but it's not our biggest problem by far. The biggest problem lies here within us. It's our sin nature. It's the sin nature of, of our nation, the sinful things that we're doing. Brothers and sisters, the reason we're doing it is because we're sinners and we need a Savior. We need salvation. We need Christ. A cult of personality, all sorts of tribalism will not work. What must happen? We must bow. As Psalm 2 said it before us, we have to bow before the sun. We have to kiss the sun lest he be angry and we be dashed. That nationally will happen to us unless we reform, unless we revive, unless we return to Christ. I have no doubt that we will be like countless other nations that have rebelled against God and ended up dashed. But it's so unnecessary because we are freely offered salvation in Christ. All we have to do is submit our prideful wills to him. What we have to do, therefore, is ask that the Lord would break us of our pride and humble us and lead us to do his will, to love his son, to kiss the son, and to know the blessings that he gives us. He's not joking when he says, blessed are those who know him. That's been my experience. I hope you know Christ. I hope you've come to him already. I hope he is dealing with the problems of your heart progressively day after day, freeing you from from that sin nature that the fall gave to all of us. But if not, I pray this would be the day that you do finally bow the knee and kiss the sun, no longer raging against his rules, no longer thinking that you can save yourself or that a political system or any philosophy will save you, or a political leader. Kiss the sun while there's yet time. Bow before him. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that, that you have made allowance for, for our sinful nature. Lord, it would have been a just thing to judge us and to send us all to hell, but you determined you would not do that. I thank you, Lord, that while there is no answer to be found in, in political rulers, not in an eternal sense, there is the answer to all of our needs in Christ. I pray, therefore, Lord, that we would bow before you, that we would accept your moral law. We would accept what you say about us, Lord, and our our true needs, and that, therefore, we would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept that gracious salvation that he offers to us, that we would not be so foolish, even if we don't do it literally going into our households and, and lighting them on fire. I pray, Lord, that we would not, oh, Lord... Fall asleep while the house is burning. Oh Lord, may it be the case that we seek salvation instead. May we come to Christ in humility and accept the love and, and the grace that He offers to us. May we, O oh Lord, know the blessings that come to all who are His. And we pray this in Jesus' name.